Well, let me welcome you officially now uh, to Easter 2022 um, here at Brookstone. You may have been invited to this service by a friend who said something to you about, hey, why don't you come to my church? We're going to be talking about hope on Easter Sunday, and we're going to be talking about uh, keeping hope alive. And so let me welcome you into this service where we are saying to all of us that we need to keep hope alive. You know, we've bravely labeled this year's celebrations Keep Hope Alive for a reason. And I say bravely because I think you'll agree with me that there is a fair amount of hopelessness in the world today. Have you experienced that? There's a fair amount of hopelessness that exists on the street that I live on and, and I'm sure on the street that you live on. There was a survey that was done late last year, near the end of 2021. It was in the October, November, December time frame. A massive survey which surveyed Americans to gauge the level of hopefulness or hopelessness, the levels of optimism or pessimism that the American people were feeling as we were coming into this new year. You know, this was after two years of the pandemic and all that went along with that. And um, it was during this uh, lead up to the Ukrainian war and the concerns about that. And, and it was during this time of economic upheaval and soaring inflation and just all that's been going on. And so they surveyed Americans and said, well, how are you feeling about the future of America as we begin a new year? And the results of that survey were discouraging if not surprising, because they weren't surprising, but they were discouraging. The results were these. 84% of those surveyed said that they were either extremely or very worried about our future as a nation. 84% said that they felt a measure of hopelessness, that they didn't feel incredibly hopeful about our future. Only 16% of Americans said, I am extremely hopeful for the future. Now, I want you to let that settle in for a second. Just let that sink into your heart. In the most blessed and the most prosperous and the most powerful nation in the world, fewer than one in five said, I have great hopes for our future. That's astounding that that is the measure of pessimism that exists across this land. You know, when you talk about it, you think about living with hopefulness, it's, it's this idea of when I look to the future, there's a brightness. It's like when I look to the future, I expect the chart of my circumstance to be rising. I expect things to be getting better. That's to be hopeful. But the prevailing attitude among Americans today is not so hopeful. In fact, it's the opposite of that. The prevailing attitude is one of discouragement, that people feel a bit disheartened. And even for those who aren't particularly discouraged or disheartened, there is a fair amount of cynicism that's present in the American population. And so because of that prevailing attitude, that's the reason I've said to you that we have bravely come to this Easter Sunday morning to say, hey, hey, let's keep hope alive because hope can remain alive even when things might look discouraging in the culture and in the world. 
In fact, this is my goal today. Let me just go ahead and spell it out for you. This is my goal over the next few minutes. I want to point all of us, and it's not just me pointing you, it's, I'm including myself in this. I want to include or, or to point all of us to the one person, Jesus, who can give us hope and not simply point us to Jesus and say that's where hope is, but I want to explain to you why Jesus gives us true and authentic hope. You think we can do that in the next few minutes? I, I think we can accomplish that. Where hope comes from and why Jesus gives us hope. Let's read the passage together. You follow along as I read. It's 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 3. It begins with this expression of this exaltation of God in praise. Verse number 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father, or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me read it again. Blessed be God, or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice. Now stop right there for just a second. He says that we can greatly rejoice in something. Verse number six, wherein or in this we greatly rejoice. What is the thing that we greatly rejoice in? Well, the, the greatly rejoicing of verse number six is connected back to the living hope of verse number three. We greatly rejoice in the living hope that God has provided to us through the resurrection of Jesus. Verse six, wherein we greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold or multiple temptations or trials, the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. That is, your faith is more valuable than gold. Though it be tried with fire, that your faith might be found under the praise and the honor and the glory of Jesus at his appearing. Whom having not seen, Jesus, whom having not seen you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, can we begin by acknowledging together what the Bible acknowledges about the realities of life? You know, the Bible is more candid about the realities of this life than many Christians are. Because there are many Christians out there who pretend that as long as I am a follower of Jesus, my life will always be a life with little to no difficulty. Maybe you've been around a Christian community like that, or maybe you've heard some preacher talk about that, that if you will be a Christian and if you will uh, live for the Lord, then you will always be happy, healthy, wealthy. You will, your life will just skip along merrily from one lollipop moment to the next. Can I ask, is that anybody's experience in the room? Nobody. That's not real. We know that that's not real. And one of the things that I love about the scriptures is that the, the Bible is honest. 
And when Peter writes to these followers of Jesus, he says to them in verse number six, look at it, you are in heaviness. Heaviness. The word heaviness means to be grieved, so much so that you are vexed. The idea is that, is that the grief, the burden is so heavy that you weep because of the burdens. Let me tell you what I know is true in this room today. Listen carefully. If we could see past the facade that we put up, if we could see past the externals and see into the hearts of people in this room, we would see people carrying anvils of circumstance. We would see burdens so heavy that it's a miracle that you got out of bed this morning. This is the reality of life. For all of us at varying times and to varying degrees, we all encounter what he calls in verse number six, heaviness. And in fact, he says, that the heaviness that we carry doesn't come from one or two sources. Verse number six, it comes from manifold or multiple kinds of difficulties or trials. Can we agree together? In fact, would you write this down in your notes? Let's just make sure that we understand it. Peter is teaching us that there are many kinds of trials that can drain hope away from us. Many kinds of trials that can cause the hope in our lives to begin to drain out. You ever feel like somebody just slipped up behind you with two drills in their hand and they come up to your hope bucket and they went, and they started drilling holes in the bottom and hope just started draining out of your life. That ever happened to you? Sure it's happened. It's happened to all of us. Now we don't know exactly what, what the drain was in the lives of these recipients of Peter's letter. Verse 1 gives us an idea. We don't know exactly their difficulties. But look at what verse 1 says. It gives us a hint. Verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He, he calls his recipients scattered strangers. It's an interesting phrase. Scattered strangers. Now the word scattered, the word that's translated scattered is the Greek word diaspora or diaspora. And it's, it's a word that is, that is uniquely um, Jewish. It speaks to the plight of the Jewish people through the years. What he's keying on in their experience is that your scattering in your current situation is not unlike the scattering that has been the mark of the Jewish people throughout the years. The word means to, to scatter or to fling out. It would be like if I had a handful of BBs and I wanted to, I wanted to disperse them. If I threw them, they're not going to go single file down the middle aisle, right? If I throw a handful of BBs, they're just going to go everywhere. What, what the history of the Jewish people is, is that they have been scattered throughout the nations throughout their entire national history. Peter's keying on that reality when he calls these believers in Jesus scattered. By the way, I might just stop and say, you and I are living in a very unique season, a, a unique moment in history where the Jewish people are not scattered. Throughout their history, they have been. They're currently not. In fact, we're living in a time when they're not being scattered, they're being gathered. And that ought to encourage your heart if you believe in the second coming of Jesus because the Bible says that in the last days just before Jesus comes, God will no longer scatter the Jews, but he will gather the Jews. Can I get a witness? He's gathering them home, amen? So we ought to be encouraged by that. Well, these Jewish believers in Jesus to whom Peter is writing have been scattered. 
He says that you are the scattered strangers. The word strangers doesn't mean that they were strangers to Peter. He knew them. It means that they were strangers where they had scattered to. So in Asia and Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, this region in modern-day Turkey, they had been driven from their homes, and now they're living in these places where they don't belong, where they're foreigners or they're strangers. So Peter is writing to refugees, Christian refugees, who because of persecution have had to leave their hometowns, leave their families. They've been alienated from their families. They're living in a place where they don't belong. Because of that, I'm certain they're living in poverty. They're likely, in all likelihood, facing violence. They are facing great difficulties. And and it's like the hope in their lives is draining away. So Peter writes to them to acknowledge these hardships and to encourage them to have hope. Now listen, let me just say to you that while you and I may not be scattered strangers, in the same way that they face difficulties that that cause them to lose hope, all of us face difficulties that drain hope out of our lives. Let me suggest a few ways that it happens. I've already mentioned world events and circumstances with the economy and all that's going on in the world. That causes many of us to, to have a sense of the loss of hopefulness. Did you know, by the way, that over the last two years since the pandemic, uh, pandemic began, that the suicide attempt rate for teenage girls, I'm specifically talking about girls, teenage girls... Our, uh, the, the attempt rate for suicide has increased by 51% over the last two years because hope has just been drained away. When you think about teenagers in general, not just the girls, but girls and boys, psychiatric admissions into hospital psychiatric wards of teenagers has increased by 31% in two years because all hope in so many ways was drained from their lives through the pandemic. It causes hope to drain away. But it's not only the circumstances of the world. It can be much closer to home than that. We can lose hope just by enduring any kind of loss. maybe, Maybe you're sitting here today and you've lost your health. Or someone that you love has lost their health. And so that you, you know, you, you're that person, you've gotten the call from the doctor that said, hey, listen, we ran some tests, we've seen something that's concerning, we need you to get back in, we, we need to run some more conclusive tests. And you've gone back in for those tests and they've, they've run some of those and now they've, they've come up with a diagnosis and a prognosis and that means a, a protocol of treatment and you're on that journey now and as you go through this journey, it's like, it's like somebody just went into your hope bucket and they just start, hope just starts draining away. Maybe it's beyond the loss of health. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. You know, when we say goodbye to someone that we love, when we have to go to a fresh grave and bury that person that we love, it's like somebody can come up and just, and that hope just starts draining away. Just past, we've had three funerals in one week here within our church. And all of those families have felt a measure, though they have hope in Christ and they cling to that, there is this measure of, man, that, of loss and hopelessness that begins to, to uh, drain away. I mean, you don't have to lose your health or your life. You, you can lose hope when you lose your job. Something happens at work and you, you, you suddenly your career has to change. And, and so maybe you lose an income or you lose your status. Well, you feel like your status, like this has been my identity, this is my career, and now that's changed. I don't really know who I am anymore. And, and so I've lost my, my hope. 
You lose hope because of conflict. You know, maybe you would say, I, I'm so tired of the fight. I don't know, maybe it's in your marriage or some other relationship. And you just say, I, I'm so tired of the conflict. It's just a constant battle in this relationship. I, I, I'm trying to, to help it and make it better, but it seems like there's no hope for it. And hope starts draining away. You can lose hope in disappointment. Somebody that you love and trust lets you down. You you put your confidence in that person. You believed in that person, and they just let you down and betrayed you. And hope starts to drain away. What about this one? Aging. Aging will cause us to lose hope sometimes. As we get older, sometimes we we lose a bit of our vitality, and, and as we age we, we sometimes begin to lose our ability to live independently and, and, uh, and so we, we're dependent on others and we can't do what we wanted to do or what we once did and it's like somebody just drills a hole in the bottom of our Am I touching on anybody's life this morning? Are these, are these areas in which we can lose hope? Sure they are. Now here's the thing. What Peter is saying in this passage is, let's be honest, there is... There is hopelessness that can occur in this life. We can lose hope because we live in a broken world. But he also says there are a couple of things about these hardships that we ought to know. Write them down. Number one is he tells us that hard times are temporary. If you're glad hard times don't last forever, shout amen. Amen. They don't. Look at it. It's beautiful. Verse number six. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now, here's the words, for a season. Praise God. It's just for a season. It doesn't last forever. He says these hard times will pass. They don't don't last forever. Number two, he says that hard times have a purpose. You'll see this in verse number seven when he says God uses the hard times to refine your faith. That He takes us through hard times to burn the dross off of our faith and and to solidify our confidence in him and he's growing our faith stronger through those hard times. And sometimes... God will put you in a hard place if you don't know Jesus in order to draw you to faith in Jesus. Sometimes God will put you in a difficulty if you don't know Christ so that you'll get over this attitude that says, I can handle life on my own, I'm okay just the way I am. He'll put you in a place where you just have to call out to him. This happened with with my dad. My dad came to Christ late in his life and God had to put him in a place where he had to reach up to call out to the Lord. But if you had asked my dad the day before he died, hey, are you glad for the deep valley that brought you to faith in Jesus? He would have said a thousand times over, I'm grateful. Because God used that hard time to draw me to faith. That's what he does. And so when you endure hardships, just know that God is at work and that you can know that he is using the difficulties. Now the second thing that Peter tells us, and he's honest about the hardships in life, but the second thing that he tells us is that even though there are these holes in our hope bucket and and hope might be draining, that hope can be retained. We can find hope, write it down, that hope is kept alive in the risen Christ. Hope is kept alive in the risen Christ. Let um, Let me dispel an untruth that some of you are believing. Some of you have believed that I have, life's going to go one of two ways. I can have good circumstances and I will be hopeful. Or I will endure bad circumstances 
and I will have hopelessness. And that's just not right. Because I want you to know that hard times and hope can go together. Hard times and hope are not mutually exclusive. And this is Peter's point in this first chapter, that we, even though we endure hard times, we have hope. I love verse number three. I want to read it to you again. Listen to what he says. Praise be to God, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope. Loved ones, listen to me. What Peter says here is that Christians, those who are in Christ, possess a living hope. The word living, he didn't just say hope, but he said living hope. The word living means a fresh hope. It's like a spring of water that's alive. It's constantly putting forth fresh water. It's a strong flow, like a waterfall of hope. He says when you are in Christ, fundamental to your Christian experience is the possession of hope. He says that for the Christian, it is, it is at the heart of being a follower of Christ that we possess hope. Let me say it this way. Listen carefully. He says that hopelessness and Christian, those two words don't go together. That a hopeless Christian, a Christian without hope is an oxymoron. Every Christian can possess this living hope. In fact, let me read to you what Paul said about it. You don't have to turn. It's only one verse. Paul said this in Romans 15 and verse 13. He said, now may the God of hope, and I love that, that Paul even titles over the throne of God, he puts this title, this is the God of hope. The God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope. He says that this God of hope doesn't ration out small measures of hope, but he is the God of hope which causes us to abound, to have an abundance of hope. It is, it is constituent to who we are as believers that hope exists within our hearts. And by the way, I should tell you that when, when the Bible talks about hope, like when we talk about Christian hope, when, when Paul says in in Romans 15, now may the God of hope give you joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. When, he, when Paul talks about hope. Or when Peter says, you've been born again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus. When the Bible talks about Christian hope, biblical hope, it's different than worldly hope, earthly hope. Let me show you the difference. Earthly hope, worldly hope is this. Hey, we're going golfing tomorrow. Is the weather going to be nice at, tea, at our tea off time? Well, I hope so. Um, are we going to get to take that vacation we planned next summer? I, I hope so. We're, we're working. We, we hope all, all the details work out. We're hoping. When, we, when the world talks about hope, they're wishful thinking. They're hoping everything that works out, but they can't know for certain until it's done. That's not biblical hope at all. If y'all listening, shout amen. That's not biblical hope. Here's biblical hope. Biblical hope means it is a certainty. It is an assured, guaranteed outcome. It is an expected or an expectation that I can count on. In fact, when the Bible talks about hope, that is exactly what it means, a definite or certain 
outcome. Listen to what Hebrews says about it in Hebrews 6.19. It says, we have this hope. Not as a wishful thinking, but as an anchor for the soul. Firm, steadfast. The hope that we have in Christ is a certainty like an anchor for the soul. And you might say, well, why? Well, I mean, what is it about Christian hope? Why is biblical hope different than worldly hope? How can you know that it's so certain? Peter answers the question for us in verse number three. Write it down. He tells us in verse three that hope is certain when it's rooted in God's goodness, when it's, because it's based upon God's goodness. Verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope. Let me tell you why the Christian's hope is certain. It's not because somehow the Christian has, has worked to be able to earn such certain hope. It's not even at the end of the day because the Christian might have more faith. Here's why. It is because, if you're listening, say amen. It's because God is good. That's why. No other reason. That God is merciful. And it's in his abundant mercy that he has looked at us and said, I'm going to give you an everlasting and an eternal hope. The second reason that it's certain is because hope is the birthright of the Christian. In other words, we haven't achieved hope. We've received hope. We got it when we got born again. Verse number three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, because he's good, hath begotten us again, Unto a living hope. Begotten us again. In other words, we have been born again. And when we were born again, we were born again out of hopelessness and into this firm, certain, steadfast, anchored hope in Christ. We can say we are certain in our hope because God is good and we are born again. Thirdly, it is certain because hope is provided by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Hope is provided by the resurrection of Jesus. Again, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, because he is good, he has allowed us to be born again into this living hope, which he has provided to us, verse 3 says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you understand that the resurrection of Jesus is the depository where our hope is? Is held. Let me say it to you this way. When Christ died, hope died with him. But when Christ arose, hope sprang to life again. And as long as Christ lives, then hope is alive. In fact, since we're talking about the resurrection, let me ask you to hold your finger in 1 Peter and turn back with me to Matthew chapter number 27 for just a moment. We'll be right back to 1 Peter. But I want you to go to Matthew 27. And just for a moment, I want to show you Matthew's accounting of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. I'm in Matthew 27 and verse number 33. The Bible says, When they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, They gave to him, that's to Jesus, vinegar to drink mingled with gall. That's vinegar and wine mixture. It's an an anesthetic. He wouldn't receive it. Verse 35, and they crucified him. Now notice in verse 35, it says they they crucified him. You have they and him. These, These third person pronouns. They 
the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers, they crucified him. He is Jesus. At this point, we're observers watching them crucify him. I want you to step into the text, okay? I want you to add the first person yourself into the text. And one of the things that you could do, and this would not be incorrect, is in the margin of your Bible next to verse number 35 where it says they crucified him, just add these two words, for me. Put the first person into the passage. They crucified him for me. Because what I want you to understand today is that when Jesus was crucified, that was all about me and you. It was all about the fact that you and I are sinful and deserve to die. And Jesus was sinless and had done nothing to deserve of death. But the Bible says that God took all of your sin and mine and put our sin on Jesus. And Jesus paid for it when he died. They crucified him for me. And so that means that if that is true, I am just as liable, guilty for the death of Jesus as are those who cried out, crucify him. As are those who took spikes and a hammer and drove the nails through his hands and feet. I am guilty. You are guilty. They crucified him, the Bible says, for me. Verse number 36, and sitting down, they watched him there. They watched him for three hours. He died in verse 50. Look at Matthew 27, verse 50. So Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. He dies in verse 50. In verse 54, And when the centurion and they that were with him saw these things, watching Jesus, they said, they testified, those who were on location that day testified of Jesus, truly this was the Son of God. All right, let's put it together and be clear. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in the flesh, who bore my sins and your sins to Calvary, bore our sins and was crucified and died on the cross for you and me. Do you understand? That is what happened on that day. And if you turn one page to Matthew 28, you'll see what happened following that. Jesus dies on the cross. His followers take his body down from the cross. The Sabbath is coming. The sun is setting. They don't have much time. They have to be home by the by the setting of the sun, by the Sabbath. And so they take his body, lay it in a tomb. They, they begin to prepare it, to wash it for burial. But time runs out. They roll a stone to the door and scurry off to be home before the Sabbath comes. All day through the Sabbath they await. And on Sunday morning, early in the morning, on that first Sunday morning, they come back to the tomb. Look at it, verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 1, chapter 28. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came and the other Mary to see the grave. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment as white as snow, and for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus which was crucified. Let me, let me translate it. Here's what he says. I know that you seek the body of Jesus. Do you, do you see that? I know that you've come to see the corpse of Jesus. Here's the rest of the verse. 
He, Jesus, is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see for yourself. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Loved ones, this is the gospel. This is the good news, that Christ, the Son of God, took your sin and mine, carried it to the cross, died there in our place, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead. That's the gospel. And the Bible says if you believe that, you can be saved. In fact, back in 1 Peter, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says that when we put our faith in him, we receive the salvation of our souls. Will you believe it? Will you? Will you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, bore your sin because you can't bear it, you can't pay for it yourself? It's impossible. So he did it for you. And then when he took all of your sin and died on the cross, that was sufficient payment. God accepted it and will forgive you as you put your faith and trust in Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection. That is what is required for salvation. And when we are in Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, then suddenly, though we live in a world where people keep drilling holes into our hope bucket and hope starts draining out, when we come to Christ, he plugs the holes and we are able to retain hope. In fact, I want you to jot this down as we move to close. Let me just wrap up by saying to you that that Peter makes it clear to us in 1 Peter chapter number 1 that the hope that Christ gives us is a hope that brings with it great joy. In fact, write it down this way. He tells us that hope produces a joy that cannot be drained away. The hope that a Christian possesses results in joy. So watch this. Here's the way it happens. God gives me hope in the resurrection of Christ. The hope that I receive produces within my life the fruit of joy. Even though I live in a world and maybe have personal circumstances that would seem to drain my hope and joy. Now, let me be clear to say this doesn't mean that Christians never get discouraged. Of course, we do get discouraged. And it doesn't mean that Christians don't even struggle sometimes with things like you know dark seasons and depression and things like that. It doesn't mean that Christians don't have dark days or dark seasons. Here's what it does mean, though. That in the midst of darkness and in the midst of difficult circumstances, there is a deep abiding joy that you can't even explain. In fact, he, tell, he calls it in verse number 8 of uh, 1 Peter 1, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Verse number six, he says, we rejoice even though we are in heaviness. Now you say, well, pastor, how can I do that? How, how do I get a hold of that joy even in, in dark circumstances? Turn over to 1 Peter chapter four. Look at verse number 12. He tells us how to do it. 1 Peter four and verse 12. He says, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. As though some strange thing has happened to you. Do you know what he's saying there? He says, when you have difficulty come in your life, when somebody comes up and goes, and they drill holes in the bottom of your hope bucket, he says, when that happens to you, don't think that that's odd. Don't, th- don't say, oh, I can't believe this terrible thing happened. Peter would say, you're not in heaven yet. 
I mean, I'm not making light, I know. I mean, sometimes the difficulties are unspeakable and, and the hardships are horrible. I get that. I'm not making light of it. But Peter is saying, listen, you live in a broken world. You're going to encounter hardships. In fact, look at the next verse. Rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. Listen, listen. If y'all are listening, say amen. Don't miss this. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. And what did he do on the earth? He suffered. And I'm not better than Jesus. And so if Jesus suffered, I shouldn't be surprised when I have to suffer. But he says, when you suffer, just know that you're partaking in the sufferings of Christ and that when he comes, his glory is revealed, verse number 13, you may be glad in that day with exceeding joy. He says, yes, you're going to suffer in this world, but when you're in Christ, you can lean into the hope that one day he's coming again and he's going to set everything right. That hope produces joy that one day Christ will come. Let me finish. Let me, let me wrap it up uh, in 1 Peter, chapter, or second, 1 Peter chapter 1 with this last thought out of verse number 4, and it is that hope has a destination. Look at it with me, verse number four. He says in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection, according to his abundant mercy, by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Verse four, to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away. Hope has a destination, and that destination is heaven. And you know what an inheritance is. He says in verse number four that we have been given an inheritance. An inheritance is a share in the possession or in a possession that is provided to you by another person, right? So you get a share of that in your inheritance. Well, what the Bible says is that Christ has gone to heaven. He owns all of heaven and that he is preparing for us a share in heaven. We get an inheritance in heaven. And he says it's undefiled, And it will never die, it'll never fade away, it is there forever. Let me tell you something, I want to testify to you this morning, I have an eternal hope and I will be in heaven one day, guarantee you. It's not a hope so, wish so, wishful thinking, it is a certain outcome anchored in my soul. You say, how do you know that? How do you know you're not going to wake up tomorrow and have no hope? How do you know you're not going to wake up tomorrow and all those things you used to believe you don't believe anymore and now you're not going to have any hope any longer? Let me tell you how I know. If you want to know how I know, say, tell me how you know. (laughs) Some of you don't want to know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Here's how I know. I know that I have a hope in heaven because Jesus Christ is alive and he will never, ever die again. And as long as Christ lives in heaven, I have a hope of going to heaven. My hope. Your hope, if you know Christ, is in heaven. And so listen, the next time you turn on the news, and it's like somebody goes, and hope starts draining away because you don't have this world's going to get it back together. Or the next time some, some life event comes, or the doctor calls and the news is bad, or somebody that you love passes away, or whatever, and, it's, and these, the hope bucket just starts to drain. Just lean into Christ. The next time... You go pump gas <laughs> and hope drains away <laughs> along with your money. Ne- the next time you go to the grocery store, I've told Tracy, don't even ask me to go. I just get mad when I go and they ring it all up. That's a little bag and a half costs $80. The, the next time 
you feel like in this life, in my circumstance, in my situation, in this sickness, in this death, in this graveyard, the next time hope starts to drain away, if you know Christ, lean into this fact that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is at the right hand of God, and he has shared with us that inheritance, and we have hope forever. And if you don't have it, I want to offer it to you today. If you aren't certain that heaven is your home, if you've never come to the place where you've acknowledged and understood fully that you do not deserve to go to heaven, and if you have any doubts or misgivings about that, let me make it clear, you're disqualified, okay? Now, don't be mad at me, so am I. We're all disqualified from going to heaven because God is perfect and his heaven is perfect and no imperfection comes in and you and I don't have to look far to know we are imperfect. We are disqualified. But Jesus is perfect. And Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. And because Jesus is perfect, when we put our trust in Jesus, God, listen, takes the perfection of Jesus and applies it to us and makes us worthy to come into heaven. Not because we're perfect, but because we're trusting in the perfect Son of God. If you've never come to the place where you've understood that and you've said, I can't go to heaven on my own, I need Jesus to get me in, then I want you to, I want you to come to that place today. And I want you to put your faith and your trust in Christ for salvation. I want you to have hope, hope in this life and hope in eternity. And that comes through Jesus.